Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor of DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrello. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 61. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Donovan. And this is Joe. And we are going to be bringing you the latest comic news and comic reviews from the weeks of January 23rd through February 12th. Yes, that's right, three weeks, and we have 11 books to cover. ton of stuff to go over. Josh will be joining us for some recaps of... Three of the books we'll be covering later on. Um, but for the most part, uh, we do have a little bit of news. But the big chunk of this episode is going to be views of the 11 books that came out in the last three weeks. So, let's get right into it. As far as comic news, we have really, like I said, only a couple things to go over. Because there really just wasn't that much stuff that really happened newsworthy. Um, but the first thing we have is on February 1st, the 2011 Joe Schuster Award nominations were announced. And there were some creators nominated for the work on Batman-related projects. The Joe Schuster Awards are a comic staple of Canada and honor Canadian comic book writers, creators, publishers, and retailers for outstanding achievements. So as far as the Batman-related creators that were nominated for outstanding comic book artists, Cameron Stewart for Batman and Robin number 7 through 9 and number 16, Francis Manipool for Superman Batman number 75, and moving into the other category, outstanding comic book writer Jay Torres was nominated for Batman the Brave and the Bold number 11. So, those awards will be announced on June 18th. Obviously, congratulations to the nominees. It's very cool. Um, it's well to be expected, especially with Cameron Stewart. Guys like Cameron Stewart and Francis Manipole really deserve it because I think that like this past year has actually been a very good standout for uh, art and comic books, and Batman was no exception. So, uh, good on them. They deserve it. All right. So, the next thing we've got is from February 4th. Comic Book Resources continued their Bat Signal segment with an interview with Brian Q. Miller. Miller has been obviously writing Stephanie Brown in Batgirl since the series began over a year and a half ago. We're going to go over the highlights from the interview. There is a little bit of stuff to go over, so I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Don will read for Brian Q. Miller. With Bruce's return, Stephanie is still doing her thing. She's much more confident in the role of Batgirl, but still maintains her self-deprecating sense of humor. What can you say about where you'll be taking the character and what we'll be seeing from her? Moving forward, not specifically in issues 17 and 18 because they're a little more separate from the larger arc. Now that she knows who she is as Batgirl and she's finally comfortable with the life she has, there'll be the challenge for her of the world that she has become comfortable with changing around her. It's going to be her trying to maintain her position, her status, not just in her own life, but in her relationship with her mother and her relationship with Barbara. Gail has the death of Oracle thing happening, which will impact how Team Batgirl works. She's got that murder rap as well, put on her by the cluster of rogues from issue 15 and 16. Even though she was cleared, there will still be repercussions from that happening. She's finally comfortable, but the world will be throwing back in her face. It's her navigating a sea of change as the year goes forward. 
You touched on this earlier, but I want to come back to it because it warrants further discussion. Oracle has been a big part of this book, so how much effort can readers expect the current death of Oracle storyline to have on background? Honestly, there's nothing I can say to it that's within my rights to say because it's going on over in Gale's Birds of Prey. But it will definitely have an impact on how Team Batgirl works. I can say that. Looking at the current arc, as you mentioned, it doesn't completely tie in with the rest of the year's story, but instead shares loose ties with Batman Inc. How much will that series and those plans be influencing your stories? Not too much. I believe Batgirl is going to show up in Grant's side of the fence for another mission at some point. So aside for some new toys from the official Bruce Wayne money coming their way, new upgrades and new weapons and new computers, it won't impact the storytelling much. Obviously, you have this year planned out. What about beyond 2011? Some writers plan out years and years ahead for stories. How far do your plans reach for Stephanie and Beck? I would say that barring whether something turns into a two-part or three-part issues, I got safely tucked away coming out of the finale of this Order of the Scythe arc. Probably at least another year or two. But that's what I have planned out. There's always potential for more. All right, so that's the end of that interview. So I guess really the interesting points out of this... Well, there wasn't a ton. Um, obviously, whatever's going to be happening in Birds of Prey is going to have an effect in Batgirl, which I like to see because it, it means that whatever's going to happen in Birds of Prey is actually going to have a lasting effect on the DC Universe instead of just Birds of Prey. It is interesting that he makes the comment about how she'll get some new upgrades and weapons through computers, but I don't really think that's going to be anything that she already doesn't have access to. That's just me. Um, she had that ricochet. Obviously, it wasn't Barbara Gordon and Stephanie Brown who purchased that or had that created. So clearly, this is something that she already has. So I don't think the money has anything to do with what we're going to be seeing. Yeah, I don't remember anything specifically stated in the return that she was going to be upgraded like Bar Barbara would be. Like there was no new costume. There was no new arsenal. And that's fine. That's the best part I like about this, this title, Batgirl, is that with all the stuff going on, this is one of the few book, bat books that is fairly self-contained, and I do like that. So it wasn't really anything new or exciting said, but it was reassuring to know that it was going to stay that way. I suppose the one new thing she could be getting is there. Uh, I think she's got like a purple mini Batmobile type thing. So I wonder if that's coming into it at all. And it's good to see that he's got his stories planned out for a while. When he was talking about whether they turn into two or three issue arcs, I hope that means he's not going to try and drag some out more than they need to be. But it sounds like he's got his stuff planned out, which is good. Yeah, he's definitely one of those writers where I don't think I, he's as good as Fabian as far as crossover stuff and linking a lot of those different elements together. But he's definitely a writer who's clearly devoted to a character. The fact that he's done at this point, he you know, he's he's written and solicited there's 18 issues so far that's a year and a half work and what other bat books besides red robin which even red robin only had chris yost on for 12 issues and then he left and moved on to something else we have you know streets of gotham which supposedly had paul dini on it which clearly it didn't for all of those issues but there's not really consistently the same writer on any specific book uh, gail simone has been on birds of prey since it relaunched but that just relaunched last summer. So, you know, it, Gail Simone's one of those writers, too, very devoted to the characters until DC decides to cancel the series. But for the most part, 
Brian Q. Miller is kind of going into one of those uh, categories with the writers who like sticking around with their characters. Right. All right, so with that, let's go into our next announcement. On February 9th, The Source posted an announcement that there will be a miniseries connecting the events in the video game Batman Arkham Asylum to Batman Arkham City. Obviously, this is the comic podcast, but if you listen to the normal podcast, you know that there is a sequel to the video game Batman Arkham Asylum coming out later this fall. And Arkham Asylum was a very big success, and it had a very good storyline, a lot of people really enjoyed it. Now, obviously, this doesn't happen in continuity, and obviously, whatever happens has nothing necessarily to do with the comics, but it is an extra added bonus. What this miniseries is, is there is basically a time frame between the events that have occurred in the video game Arkham Asylum and what will occur in the video game Batman Arkham City. So they're going to have a six-issue miniseries that bridges the gap between the two games to kind of as an added bonus to not only comic fans, but fans of the video game as well. These uh, will be released day and date in digital format as well, for those of you who have an iPad and or another tablet of sorts and have decided to jump on the digital bandwagon. But what's really interesting is there's also going to be an added thing where it'll be an eight-page type of interactive animation type thing that you can purchase in addition to the comic this will be in digital format only. It won't pertain specifically to the story as far as you'll have to read this in order to really get what you need to out of the story. It'll be like an added bonus. You can purchase these and you can watch them on your tablet of choosing. And in turn, it gives you a little bit of added bonus of what you would already see in the miniseries. Now obviously this miniseries will also be released in a print format as well for those of us, and we will be covering this mini-series here on the Comic Podcast. It, is, it does make sense that they're going to do this, but things like this to me always kind of just scream, we need money, so. Uh, it's written by Paul Dini, so I, I guess it's going to be cool. Yeah, that's the thing. It's written by Paul Dini, so it'll probably take an extra year to come out. I think it'll probably get quite a few fans, especially with digital format. If people are interested in the games, they might then look into the comic to bridge the gap. So I think you might get a couple of new readers from it. Yeah, especially in the digital format, which I think is going to be a huge advantage to some of the people who don't necessarily go to the comic book shops and pick up the comics at the store. Right. All right, so the next bit of news we have is from February 9th. Comic Book Resources had the next segment for The Bad Signal, where they interviewed Peter Tomasi. Um, Obviously, Peter Tomasi has taken over Batman and Robin with Patrick Gleason this month with Batman and Robin number 20, which we will review a little later. So, for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Joe will read for Peter Tomasi. Did you get a chance to speak with Grant about where you're heading with the title? No. It simply began with Grant saying he'd like me to take over the series, and that was it. He enjoyed my work, and over the next thing I knew, the Morrison sword blade was tapping each of my shoulders, and I found myself being dark-knighted. I have a feeling after that joke he may just want to swing the sword and lop my head off. I'm hoping that he digs what I'm doing from here on out. What's your long-term plan for Batman and Robin? Will you continue with short three-issue arcs like Granted, or will you be telling larger stories over more issues? I'm planning on sticking with Grant's template, but for God's sake, don't hold me to that. If the story feels bigger, I'll probably give it a little room to breathe. But right now, the first few arcs are three-issue stories with an underlying uber-thread 
that will pay off later. My roadmap is simply cool characters, beats and heavy action. Every three months, you're getting a beginning, middle and end. Biff, bam, boom. And then right on to the next adventure. In this first arc, Batman and Robin will face off against the White Knight. The solicitation hype of perhaps the strangest Bat villain yet is really saying something when you look at Batman's rogues gallery. What can you tell us about him? The White Knight has a very distinct vision of what he wants his world to be, and he has no problems in trying to shape it to match this particular vision. He sees himself as a hero that is desperately needed, and he will use whatever means necessary to dispel the growing darkness he believes is eating away at humanity's soul. Will your next arc feature a classic Batman rogue, or will you continue to introduce new villains to the mythos? For the next two arcs, I definitely have two new villains I'm introducing. There will be familiar faces, which you will especially in Batman and Robin issue 21. The Batman rogues bench is so deep, I'd be crazy not to bring them up to the plate now and again. Alright, so once again, hand is a comic book resources for not really getting any real good information from the person they're interviewing. <laughs> but uh, with that, I mean, we do know that Peter Tomasi does have some plans for some new villains. It really just seems like there's been this influx of creating new villains lately. Some of them have been worth it, some of them haven't. Really, I guess we'll just have to wait and see to see what happens. I think either Zach or Josh mentioned in the past, but we're getting more and more new villains. That's kind of... I'm not, I'm not as excited as they, they probably want me to be, let's just say that. But I guess it's okay. I mean, the White Knight sounds interesting. It sounds like sort of like how Harvey Dent was in the uh, Dark Knight movie, just taking to the nth degree with trying to control everything. So uh, that sounds interesting, but at the same time, it's like, you know, new villains again. Uh, it seems like new villains are sort of like the conventional way to write Batman comics these days, you know. I don't know what my plot's going to be, so let me write a new villain. So. I mean, but well, I guess we'll see how it goes. Yeah, when I read that, I literally rolled my eyes. But I think the whole point in doing a new villain is people want to be sort of uh, original and not write the same story as everyone else but in doing that they end up just creating the same characters again and again yeah I think the big thing is I think the editorial staff is probably thinking to themselves you know every once in a while we get a new villain that comes along and it sticks so I don't think they have any qualms against these writers who are going to be on the books for a lengthy amount of time creating some characters that could could stick I mean, there was some characters, Black Glove on it, obviously, um, along with Professor Pig, that really kind of had a fan, you know, basis behind them after Grant Morrison introduced those characters. So, you know, will we see those characters again? We may or may not. But the reality is, it's okay for these new villains to be introduced as long as they're worthwhile. I, I can't stand when they're introducing these characters that mean absolutely nothing to what the story has to do with. And it's really just, let's create a new villain because this villain has to do with something that we're trying to get across. Because honestly, there's probably two or three villains in the DC Universe that already serve that purpose. Totally agree. And, yeah. and equally, I think every creator wants to add something to the Batman history. So that's probably another reason for creating new villains. Yep. Alright, so with that... Let's go into our next bit of news. On February 10th, the source announced that Lee Bermejo, the artist for the Joker graphic novel, will be writing and drawing a new graphic novel entitled Batman Noel. The source has described it as a holiday story with a twist. And the editor for the book, Mark Chirello, shared a couple little bit of words about the project. 
I'm totally excited about this project, and not only because Libermejo is such an astounding artist. Sure, the work he's done in the past, Joker Original Graphic Novel and Wednesday Comics, has been pretty brilliant, and I'd expect nothing less from Lee. But the added bonus of Batman Noel being drawn and written by Lee is extra cool. In other words, I knew Lee could deliver the goods artistically, but I never knew he was also this great of a writer. There was no official announcement of when this book will be released, but this was announced around the same time they were announcing a lot of the things coming out in May, so it could be out as early as May, but it could be held off to the holidays. Who knows at this point? Yeah, it's probably most likely going to be late, but I'm actually very excited about this. I, I like the Joker hardcover, but I really, really, really love the art. So Lee Bermejo drawing Batman again just has me... <laughs> I was like a dog when I first learned about that. I was like, huh? So that, that's something that caught my eye, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I'm not that bothered. I never read the Joker graphic novel because of the art, because he's basically drew Heath Ledger in it, and that really put me off. All right, so with that, let's get into our next bit of news. On February 11th, the source posted up an announcement of a new miniseries focusing mostly on the history of Gotham City. Scott Snyder will team with Kyle Higgins to write the six-part miniseries drawn by Trevor McCarthy. Here is the solicitation for the first issue. It reads, When a mystery as old as Gotham City itself surfaces, Batman assembles a team of his greatest detectives, including Red Robin, Owlman, I Ching, and others, to investigate this startling new enigma. As clues are discovered and the mystery deepens, Batman's team soon finds itself on a journey that explores different eras in (laughs) Gotham's history and touches upon notable Gotham families, including the Waynes, Canes, and Elliots. This miniseries obviously spins out of recent events in the Batman titles and sets the stage for several exciting storylines in 2011. This will be a limited series that will touch upon the mysterious story elements introduced in Grant Morrison's Return of Bruce Wayne, featuring many exciting Batman family guest stars. All right, so my thoughts on this book. You know, Scott Snyder's been delivering on Detective Comics, so I believe that he'll be able to deliver with this miniseries. My only concern is that it says that he's teaming with Kyle Higgins. I have nothing against Kyle Higgins, but I guess that the only reason the team-up's happening is because Scott Snyder's still on Detective Comics, and that might be the reason. I really hope it doesn't turn into one of those, you do one issue, I do the next issue, you do the next one, and then switch back and forth, because I don't think miniseries are very successful if they do that. However... I am extremely interested in the history of Gotham City because I think it's something that we really don't get a whole lot of stories about and there's not a whole lot of elements that touch on this. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this, specifically the things where they're talking about the Waynes, the Canes, and the Elliots and the history maybe even before you know the the initial first generation back existed. I'm kind of mixed on this. Initially I was like, more comics? Really? But, um, I, yeah, Scott Snyder has been doing a very solid job on Detective. And also, it's fun to explore, you know, the world of Batman and know more about the supporting cast and the history. So that's cool. On the other hand, again, though, I'm just wondering, because I know that there's been some stuff set up around the 90s, like around the Daniel O'Neill era. Like his landmarks, like Robinson Park and stuff, and some backstory with uh, Bruce's early ancestors. So I'm kind of concerned, but Bruce and Tim and some other guys working on a mystery written by Scott Snyder, it sounds certainly intriguing, so those are my thoughts. Yeah, I was a little skeptical at first when I first saw the solicitation, but when reading into it, it actually looked pretty good. I'm quite looking forward to it. And I think Scott Snyder, I trust him with this because... Gotham City was one of the things he was 
looking to incorporate into his detective run. So I think it's going to be interesting. Alright, so let's move into our last bit of news. On February 11th, the source posted up the solicitations for the bad books coming out this May. They didn't release the full solicitations for the entire DC Universe, but they did reveal what we would assume would be the main Batman books. So there's a couple of newsworthy mentions that came from the books that were shown and announced. So first up, it looks like Batman Incorporated is getting a new artist. Yannick Paquette appears to be moving off of the title after five issues. Next up is Chris Burnham, who recently teamed with Grant Morrison on Batman and Robin number 16. Now, there's no word on whether or not this is a permanent artist change or whatnot. It's another one of those wonderful mysteries that uh, we'll have to wait till someone gets asked in an interview to find out the answer. The next one is it appears that another Bat book is getting another final issue. Obviously, we have not been covering The Outsiders since it became more focused on the Superman side of the DC Universe. But, for some unknown reason, it's being listed as a Batman book, and it appears that Batman will once again return to the series for the final issue. The series will revert back to the Batman and Outsiders title, and play out the end of Dan DiDio's story. And then the last bit of news is that Batman and Robin will be getting a new creative team. Um, while it is unclear if this is for good or whether or not this is to give current Batman and Robin team Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason a break, Judd Winnick will team with Gilliam March to bring Jason Todd back for a three-part story arc. So thoughts on all of these. Let's go over the first one first. So Batman Incorporated getting a new artist. I guess it's not really unseen to have Grant Morrison not work with an artist for an extensive amount of time. At this point, it wasn't even like full six months that he worked with him. I enjoy Yannick Paquette's work, Chris Burnham's work. I am still kind of new to. Yes, he did work on Batman Robin number 16, but he wasn't the main artist. He worked with a number of different artists on that book, including Fraser Irving and Frank Quietly, all and Cameron Stewart, I believe, all in that book. So it's hard to say, okay, well, which ones are which, and okay... As far as other Batman stuff, he really hasn't worked on anything else, so we'll have to wait and see. So that's my thoughts on that. I can't believe Yannick Kent's leaving Batman Incorporated. I mean, I, I would really like to know what he's going to be doing, because there's a, it seems to me that there's a lot of like really, really good superstar artists, and they immediately leave after like only a couple of months. And I'm, I don't know, that, that kind of just annoys me. Chris Berner is, is New artist. Um, I'm not I'm not familiar with his work, so here's hoping he'll be okay. But I'm kind of, an, I'm kind of sad and a little ticked off that yeah, they kept bailed so immediately. Maybe it's because of delays, I'm not sure. I'm quite happy with the artist change because I wasn't that keen on Paquette's art. I thought it was a bit too <laughs> unique. I'm open for change. Yeah, I would say I'm open for change as long as it's change for the better. Yeah. All right, so the, the next one is Batman and the Outsiders ending. This should have happened a long time ago. Um, the fact that they're changing the title back to Batman and the Outsiders just for the final issue, I think it's really dumb. I think the fact that Batman has to come back and basically say, Hey, Outsiders, you're all screwed. Goodbye. <laughs> awesome. It's just basically, I mean, like this ha- they haven't been a team. They've been divided in half. For those of you who haven't been reading the book, basically the Outsiders have been two different teams working in two different areas, and they're a constant conflict with each other. And it takes away from a lot of the story that you could have had as the Outsiders as a group, as Batman formed them. So, yeah, I am 
once again not very disappointed that this series is ending, and I'm pleasantly surprised that Dan DiDio has driven this book to its grave. <laughs> I can't I can't top anything that Justin just said, so my thoughts simulate his. <laughs> I think this last issue is probably going to be in the same vein as the um, Road, Home out- Road Home Outsiders issue, where Batman basically said, yeah, you're not working with me anymore. Yeah, that's probably what it's going to end up being. All right, and then the last bit of news. This is this is one of those ones where it's hard to say exactly what's going on because, unfortunately, we get a solicitation, we don't get an announcement, we don't get any kind of information from any avenue whatsoever as far as whether it be via DC Comics with the source or whether it be another news outlet with a number of different ways of getting a hold of some of the getting some answers at least the fact that Batman and Robin was supposed to be taken over by Pierre Tomasi and Patrick Leeson and then they decided hey you know what we are going to delay them coming onto the book and we're going to put Paul Cornell and Scott McDaniel on the book instead for three issues to give Peter Tomasi and, and Patrick Leeson some time off to really make sure whatever they're doing is really good okay you know what I understood it because it made sense but now We've prolonged them being on the book for three months. They start off, their first issue hits stands, and a couple days later, we're being told that, hey, so they're in three issues, and then they're gone. And they're not just gone for a month, they're gone for another three months. So the fact that we just had that interview with Peter Tomasi, where he talks about how he has a number of different three-issue story arcs, Biff Pam Pow, yeah, I guess... It's one of those things where his story arcs are going to be very, very spread out because we get three issues in three months and then we wait another three months for another set of issues from him. No offense, but I don't really, I'm not really labeling uh, Peter Tomasi and Patrick Leeson in the same vein as Grant Morrison where they can have an excuse for taking off three issues. That doesn't even make sense to me. Grant Morrison has no problem chopping out all 17 issues even if they are delayed. Why should this be any different? If it's an artist issue and it's the delay for the artist, then get a different artist. Not only that, so, but uh, uh, Grant's issues, even though they were delayed, when, once you read them, they were worth it. Yeah. So basically, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see that Jason Todd is going to appear back. I know some people wouldn't don't want him to come back, but I think Jason Todd is an interesting character and in what they the way they kind of left everything at the end of Battle for the Cowl, and then we had, you know, the three-issue story arc from Grant Morrison where Jason Todd was the Red Hood, it kind of left it kind of flapping in the wind. We didn't know really what was going to happen with them. Um, Obviously, he was arrested, but that was the end of it. So Judd Winnick has obviously written Jason Todd. In some parts, he's done very good. In some parts, he's done very bad. I think this story may be better just because it focuses on present time instead of trying to screw with the past of the Batman universe. <laughs> screw, because he slipped with time. Um, yeah, as far as the delays go, um, it's very frustrating. It's, it's unprofessional is what it is. I mean, like we said, with Grant Morrison, you know, whatever reasons those were, I mean, he finished his run. You know, and Peter Tomasi... And Gleason, Patrick Gleason, they've they've done one issue and then they're gone for a quarter of a year. What for? However, we we, we feel about the uh, the issue that they did, number twenty. 
I don't think it warrants them getting off scot-free with this. So that's very frustrating. As far as Jason Todd returning and Judd Winnick writing him again, I mean, it seems like Jason Todd's Judd Winnick's, like, favoriteest character ever, which is – that's fine. I, I can't be excited about it because I still have that bad taste in my mouth from the miniseries, and I would really wish – if it's going to be more present day – then Judd would get back to writing him the way he wrote him back in uh, the initial Red Hood storyline. Also, but I am interested in knowing exactly where Jason will be at this point, because if I recall correctly, in Morrison's run in uh, Batman and Robin, he was arrested and unmasked. So I'm wondering, like, what's keeping him from telling everybody who Batman is? Would they recognize him as somebody who should be dead? I'm hoping we'll not get ignored in answers. Otherwise, it's just going to be annoying. When he's done well, I think... Jason Todd, like, the Red Hood is a really interesting character to read. It's really fun just for that brutal edge, which you don't always get in a Batman comic. I sound really negative tonight, but I'm actually glad that we've got a new Fiotis team, because if the rest of Tomasi's work is anything like issue 20, I'm going to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... Obviously, there's a lot of things going on in the Batman universe, and... As we get closer into the convention season, we're going to be getting a lot more news. So, And we might be getting a lot more of our questions answered because maybe some of our questions will be answered at some of these conventions. One thing I know that the Batman Universe will be asking at the first convention we attend will be, why is it that these delays happen and we are given no notice whatsoever? Because... As I discussed very lengthily in the last podcast, these delays are starting to really get on my nerves. And the fact that they're happening, at least with this delay with Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason, as we think it's a delay, um, at least this delay is being solicited. And it's not being something where we're going to get springed on it in May where suddenly they're not on the book anymore. At least that's that's one thing that they've got going for them with this. But the delays are getting a little ridiculous, and it's about time that DC starts to kind of address them. Oh no, I totally agree. I mean, I, I mean they weren't acceptable back then, back in like the good old days. <laughs> but like with all these all these titles coming out, all these several miniseries on ongoings, and we get delays. That's unacceptable, pure and simple. Hold it! Hold it! Hold it! Get out of my face, clown! Which one? Alright, so with that, let's get into our comic reviews. Like I said, we've got 11 books to go over. So, this is going to go a little bit long, probably. Some good books, some books we can't wait for them to end. And uh, we'll get into the first book, Detective Comics number 873, written by Scott Snyder and drawn by Jacques. This is the first issue of 2011, which brings the price down to $2.99 and gets rid of the co-features. So the pages do drop to 20 pages. So, issue starts off exactly where the last issue ended, where Dick Grayson, disguised, is being taken over by some fear gas while he's at the auction house, and the auctioneer is basically telling everybody to attack him because it is Batman, even though we clearly know that Batman's wearing a disguise, so there's no way of knowing who Batman is. All of these people are also hopped up on some sort of chemicals that are causing them to really take a real serious uh, approach to attacking Dick Grayson. While Dick Grayson figures out a way to escape, and as he's escaping, he really starts to lose himself because of the gas. He uh, tries to tell himself a couple of different things that he learned from his family when he was an acrobat, 
but none of them seem to be working, and at some point, he uh, completely blacks out. He wakes up, and Dick is laying in bed as Barbara is telling him that, uh, well, he lost his legs. <laughs> but as it turns out, he's still under the fear gas, and he didn't actually lose his legs. He wakes up, same predicament, but he has his legs, and Barbara's not trying to kill him. <laughs> he tells Barbara that he needs to go after the auctioneer. And she says, you know, don't worry about it. We'll be able to get him no matter, you know, it's only a matter of time before we can get him whenever and wherever he is because we're about to link into all of his money. Then Dick says, nope, he needs to go down right here in Gotham. So then we see the auctioneer in a cargo plane trying to take off from Gotham City Airport where something has happened and the cargo bay door has been opened and there's no way they can close it and they're losing all kinds of stuff out the back of the plane. The Batmobile, the flying Batmobile that we haven't seen in quite some time, happens to be flying right towards the cargo plane and the auctioneer says pull up to uh, 30,000 feet. There's no way that vehicle will be able to get up this high. Well, as they pull up, Batman pops out in a jet suit of sorts and flies up there taking out the auctioneer's henchmen. And the auctioneer, in turn, starts to transform into some kind of creature of some sort. Batman deduces after a while that he has actually taken a couple of outdated version of Dr. Langstrom's man-bat juice and some venom, and combined them through micro-syringes to make himself appear as this. Well, Batman obviously makes quick use of this man, jumps from the plane, as the plane somehow figures out a way to explode. Batman lands, and we are back at the penthouse, where Dick has decided to put up a couple of the items that he has had, per the advice of Leslie Tompkins, who has suggested that he has some psychological anchors to help him know what reality is, since he still could have some effects from the fear toxin. Alfred says, well, it's about time that this happens, and makes a comment about the crowbar that supposedly killed Jason Todd, asking him what he wanted to do with it, since he used the crowbar to escape from the auctioneer's house. He says, throw it in the river, he doesn't want it, and we see Dick Grayson staring out at the city of Gotham, contemplating what is going to happen next for him. And that is the end of issue 873. Alright, so Detective Comics 873. Couple things. I thought the story wrapped up kind of interestingly. We obviously saw the elements of Scott Snyder's background with American Vampire through the disfigured creature that came to be when the auctioneer took Manbet's serum along with the Venom We kind of saw that creature element uh, pop out from what Scott Snyder was doing with American Vampire. I was okay with it. It didn't really affect the story that badly. I liked how instead of just becoming some random creature, there was actually an explanation for it. Which seems to be a, a real big theme with Scott Snyder. He has a rhyme and reason for everything that occurs. And I like that. I'm a very practical person. I enjoy practical elements and real use of reality, which is what he's doing with this. The art had no real big issues with, except for when the auctioneer did become the creature, it was at some points very hard to tell what was going on. There was a couple of very small panels where we saw the auctioneer just very quickly become this creature. It was almost like I had to double take it for a second and think to myself, well, did he just take off his mask and somehow he's this creature underneath the mask? Or what exactly happened here? 
there wasn't that explanation through Scott Snyder's writing that would have been a little bit difficult to understand what was going on, but it ended up being fine in the end. Really, the only downfall of this issue was that there was no co-feature. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've, we've bashed the co-features repeatedly over and over again, but since Scott Snyder got into Detective Comics and we had a co-feature that was worthwhile, I was real disappointed not to see the progression of the James Gordon Jr. story. Although, knowing what we know next month, which is actually this month, February, Detective Comics number 874 is actually going to be a full issue of the James Gordon Jr. story to kind of wrap up what they were going to tell as the co-feature. I really wish they could have figured out some way to keep the co-feature in this book, just because Snyder has been the only writer who's figured out a way to make the co-feature work inside of the book and make it so that they link together. There's elements that happen in the main story that also occur in the co-feature and they support each other. It's like it actually is a co-feature, not just a extra story at the back of the book. So that was my only disappointment, but that doesn't harm the book at all. It just makes me wish that Scott Snyder starts some kind of book that has to do with James Gordon Jr., that's all. So with uh, Detective Comics number 873, overall great issue, four out of five bad ranks. I really miss that co-feature, but the main story was pretty good. It wrapped up pretty solidly. I was really digging like how Dick went through his head because he was surrounded by a bunch of enemies and he was under the uh, influence of fear toxin. He relied on something that his parents taught him, not Bruce Wayne. So I thought that was really cool. And the hallucination sequence he had with uh, Barbara telling him that he lost his legs and then Barbara trying to kill him. I, that was intense. I was really like, the book had my attention at that point. I mean, I honestly, I, I was thinking to myself, like, Dick, like, this can't be real, but it sucked me in so much. And then, like, oh, like the next page, oh, it's, it was just a dream. But man, was that well written. I think that the book kind of, I don't want to say it goes downhill, but it's not as engaging in the second half when Batman goes after the auctioneer in the daylight. But it's, it's still fine. It's just an action sequence. Man, kind of remind me of like Frank Miller's Batman from The Dark Knight Returns, just in the way he has the armor and just kind of the way that his head looks a little bit. Overall, I really I enjoyed this, not as much as the other issues, but that's because there's no co-feature. This is a solid uh, story, and I'm giving this four out of five batterings. Yeah, um, you can definitely see the horror elements coming through in this story, which is understandable from Snyder's background. And I also thought Jock did the horror art really well. Like, in the mirror house, when they all started transforming and stuff, I thought that looked really good. I thought he really came into his element there. Yeah, I, I like the uh, the scene with Barbara as well. I saw, I saw it coming, but it was so horrific, even when I was reading it. And that was, like Donovan said, really engaging. And that was really interesting to read. One problem I did have with the book was when Dick, like, fly kicks the dealer right in the chest. And I was, how could he survive that? But then I suppose at the end, when you find out he's on Venom, that's wrapped up as well. And I didn't miss the co-feature, because I liked getting the whole issue of just um, the Batman story. But I'm a bit worried about how it's going to do in its own issue, because it's now later. It's not going to tie in quite as well with the main story, and the pacing might be lost a bit. But uh, no, really good issue. I... Uh, I really like that horror element of it, and uh, I'll give it four out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give t- t- comics number 873 four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, which is Azrael number 17. I never went to the drop-off point. It was in the Narrows. Cops only go there when they're in force. Do I look like a cop? No! 
illustrated by Cliff Richards. This issue starts off with Father Day visiting Michael Lane, who he had heard was dead, but now it's seeing if he's alive. Lane is with Parentino meditating, and he and Lane have it out because for the last several issues, Father Day has um, sort of, for in Michael Lane's own words, attached to everything he's believed in. And since Lane's died and come back to life, that, that kind of put, throws the idea of a uh, resurrection into Father Day's face. But before they come to any sort of uh, mutual conclusion, Lane says that he has been given a new mission in Afghanistan to find the Brothers of the Sword. Before he leaves, however, he actually talks to Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman, and tells him that since Batman and Batman Incorporated can't go in there because it's too politically sensitive, uh, he tells him that he needs... Azrael tells Batman that he's going after a weapon called the Fireball. Two characters, two Afghans named Sami and Hakim, and uh, these two are cousins... Sammy is the one who actually turns out to be Fireball, as in he literally has abilities to uh, shoot fireballs, which is simple enough. Being in the um, sort of like religious sect in the area of Afghanistan that he is, he sees this as a sign from God that he needs to destroy all of God's enemies. And so when he, was, when he and his cousin were found by the local Afghan military, he, was used, he, he used their powers for their purposes. Once Azrael enters into um, the country... He is attacked by several soldiers and just completely murders all of them, knowing that he is utterly invincible to do this to do the uh, suit of sorrows. Um, he reaches the uh, tent where Sami, aka Fireball, is, and saying the only phrase he can in Afghan language, where is the Fireball? Uh, Fireball many names, and he's also been given uh, the moniker of the Angel of Death. Which, as everyone knows, is Azrael. And that is to be concluded in the next issue. Alright, so Azrael number 17. Obviously this this uh, series is wrapping up in one more issue. I can see them kind of folding in some of the elements. To introduce this fireball thing seems as if, well, we thought we were going to end with issue 16, and now we're sticking around for two more issues. Because now, with issue number 18, we're going to have to wrap up the fireball story and still somehow have some kind of conclusion to the Azrael story, since Azrael will probably only be appearing in, as a very minor supporting character in the bad books in the near future. I didn't have really any issues with the art. I thought it was it, it, it perceived Michael Lane and the situation in Afghanistan quite well. I'm not going to give this a high rating, mostly because it just feels like this was an added thing that they did because the series didn't end when they expected it to, which either says one of two things. One, they decided that they were going to give it a good story, but then editorial decided, no, 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 no. You know, we're not going to end it for a couple more issues. Write something else. And then we get these this issue right here, which just seems completely filler and just seems like, well, why are you adding this fireball thing? What does this have to do with what, what happened last issue? I see where it connects, but it just is a little ridiculous. So I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. And that's not because it's not good. It's just... The placement of this, knowing that the series is ending next month, just seems completely ridiculous. You make a very good point, actually. The fact that this is the penultimate issue, um, and we're starting, we're, we're starting a storyline that's going to be uh, resolved very quickly. I mean, I don't know. This series has uh, said by, at least uh, if no one else by us, 
there's a very um, very religious in all the, all the terms. And then it goes into Afghanistan and starts to get into that sort of theology. So that's I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I've actually kind of warmed to the series, slowly but surely. I'm going to give this issue a three out of five battle rings because I think it was a well-told story. I did like how Father Day and Michael Lane sort of had it out since Father Day had been saying all these ridiculous things and Michael Lane's like, oh, actually, you've been wrong the entire time. So that was interesting. So, yeah, this is this is okay. I'll give this a three out of five. Yeah, like you mentioned, with that really heavy religious stuff, I mean, I'm religious, so when they were talking about stuff like uh, Jesus wasn't crucified and stuff like that, I wasn't offended because it's only a comic book, but I kind of ended up subconsciously distancing myself from it. So I kind of found the issue a bit boring. And the art, I wasn't that... It wasn't the art I had a problem with. It was the inking. Because they all had really thick black outlines, which I didn't like. As for the story, it was was okay. It kind of... It held my interest. And I'm looking forward to the next issue, I suppose. But I'm only going to give it a one and a half out of five batterings. Okay, so that is going to give Azrael number 17 three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, which is Batgirl number 18. That's right, Joker, it's out. The automatic fuse extinguisher in my Batgirl utility belt will forever keep you from putting me into orbit. Batgirl issue 18. Batgirl is investigating the murders of some pimps in Gotham when she runs into Clarion the Witch Boy, who shrinks her and puts her in a crystal ball, revealing to Batgirl that these murders are being done by his cat because his cat's wasn't allowed to mate with another cat, so now he's out stealing other people's hearts. Batgirl agrees to help him find his cat, who turns out to be morphed into a big cat monster, which they're able to subdue. They then go to Clarion's realm, where they're going to find a cat for Clarion's cat to mate with, that way he won't be stealing other people's hearts, which they do, and uh, then they spend the rest of Valentine's Day, which this takes place of, around Gotham University, as Stephanie teaches Clarion some of Earth's Valentine's Day customs. They run into Jordana, who has some not-so-nice words to say about Clarion, who's pretty much ready to turn her into a frog before Stephanie kisses him in order to distract him at the last minute. They walk off together, laughing, and Stephanie's narration reveals that later that night, he turned Jordana into a This was a nice, fun, done-in-one issue in the in an era where all this stuff like Death of Oracle and Batman Incorporated is going on. Would have liked to have had a lot more background of Clarion, and some of the moral stuff this issue was a little um, questionable to me, like, okay, Clarion's cat is killing these people and ripping their hearts out, but it's okay at the end because he made love. Stephanie, you know, doesn't demand justice. And they steal someone else's cat from Clarion's realm, which was also questionable. Still, the issue was fun, and Dustin Lenz's watercolor arts cut in between his more traditional coloring uh, was a nice touch, especially for the Clarion stuff. I like this, and this was the type of story that probably could only be told in the Batgirl title. I'm going to give it 5 out of 5 Batarangs. Alright, Batgirl number 18. Overall, this uh, this was an interesting issue. It, again, was clearly one of those one-off issues that we talked about the last time we reviewed Batgirl, where it seems as if we are getting these issues so they can make a complete trade paperback of four issues. This time we have it in the first half with a three-issue story arc following it. 
not a bad story. I thought it was kind of interesting to see Clary and the Witch Boy working kind of with Batgirl. It, it seemed completely out of place, but at the same time, it was quite amusing. For some reason, Brian Q. Miller uh, can really link Stephanie Brown with some of these random characters and make it interesting instead of instead of what you expect, which is completely ridiculous. I think the best part of the issue was Dustin Wynn's art. The art that he used specifically when we were relating to the magical elements or the teleportation to the Puritan Pilgrim times was, was very good, and I think his art did a lot of justice for what what was being told in the story. So with that, I'm going to give Batgirl number 18 three and a half out of five batterings. I thought this issue was actually very derivative of the last issue. Uh, the last issue we had, we had Batgirl and Robin and Stephanie kind of poking fun at Damien for being a kid. It, I'm not saying that this one was the same exact thing, but it was Stephanie going up against uh, a younger boy. Well, Clarion isn't younger technically, but like in, ter- in terms of appearance, a smaller boy and sort of hijinks ensue. I think that we could have had something better than this, or at least something a little more fulfilling. And I really didn't care for the part where they kind of went in the past and like the Quaker days and Stephanie had to dress up and everything. I don't know. It's, it's a, this, I, don't, I don't want this book to become like the, like the wacky book, you know? It, I want this book to have some sort of purpose. And the last issue had a purpose. It established a relationship between Damien and Stephanie, you know, two core members of the Bat family. This one seemed like it could have been done in, I don't know, a DC Presents comic book and had the same effect. I mean, I guess this was like, this supposed to be the Valentine's Day issue, lucky characters and some kind of goofy adventure, but I honestly felt this was a waste of time. I did like the art, but it wasn't enough to really hold this up too high for me, so I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, I was wondering if the reason the past two issues have been solely Batgirl and her adventures are because of what's happening in Birds of Prey at the moment, so we're not getting any of oracle or proxy or anything like that but looking at just the issue I, I really enjoyed the painted sequences I thought they were really nice and they set the tone for the sort of romantic style of the book and I thought it was really funny this issue and uh, whilst I didn't know who Clarion the witch boy was I've, I've never really been had anything to do with him in the past but I, I still connected with the character so I think Miller's a really good writer for doing that sort of thing and like you said bringing two characters together who don't normally have anything to do with each other and uh, making it work. So, um, by all, I think I'll give it a three and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give back roll number 18, three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next Batman and Robin number 20. Holy weird riddles. Holy smoke bomb. Holy curb service. Holy stretch marks. Holy Benedict Arnold. How about you shut up? Batman and Robin number 20, written by Peter Tomasi, illustrated by Patrick Gleason. This issue starts off actually with Wayne Manor during a cold and snowy night. As we see pretty much the immediate Bat family, those being uh, Alfred, T- uh, Tim Drake, Dick Grayson, Damian Wayne, and eventually Bruce Wayne, all basically just chilling out, uh, watching a movie, The Martyr of Zorro, Hold the Irony, and um, eating popcorn and ice cream and, you know, spending some quality time together, which is nice. Uh, but however, the next night, uh, from uh, stopping another crime, as he escorts Dick Grayson to a gala event, which is the uh, a production of Das Reinhold, which is an opera. While Dick is on the red carpet in his bow tie and tuxedo greeting Lucius Fox, 
a naked man with uh, uh, what appears to be angel wings falls from the sky and crashes onto the red carpet. And he's clearly dead. Batman and Robin are with Commissioner Gordon in the morgue examining the body. And Robin, being since Robin is Damian Wayne by this point, he's rather flippant and disrespectful to the corpse, which really upsets uh, Commissioner Gordon. In fact, Christian Gordon actually takes his, takes his arm, twists it, and tells him to either show some respect or he'll make sure he'll never tag along again. So that's establishing their relationship. Batman says that they will try to digitally reconstruct the person's head and scan it across the city's security cameras. And in true form, once Christian Gordon turns around to talk to them again, they've disappeared. Batman and Robin are on top of where they think the person fell and trying to examine the crime scene. And Dick finds under one of the scaffoldings a note that says, "It's time to end the suffering. I will put. I will not add to the world's pain." Before they can uh, decipher what that means exactly, Batman and Robin are attacked by man bats, and he seems like he is just out of his mind. He's screaming, "Save them! Save them from the light!" While dragging Batman along with them, Damien wants to end this battle very quickly and crashes upon uh, man bats as he. Man-Bat and Batman all crash and on top of a car. And while they're crashing, they are totally overwhelmed against by hundreds and hundreds of pitch-white, illuminating, bright bats. As they, they see all the bats lying on the ground, as well as Man-Bats. And all Batman can say is, this isn't good. And that is to be continued. I see telling a story, and possibly the story was just that great that uh, it was worth the wait, and... Another story could be worth the wait, too. I can't go that way because, uh, I mean, overall the story was was okay. It definitely wasn't up to par with what Grant Morrison has. <laughs> the sad fact is that even though we normally wouldn't compare, you know, what, what a creator is doing to Grant Morrison, this I have no choice but to do because it seems as if uh, this creative team is going to be bigger stars than Grant Morrison was with whoever the artist was that he was teaming up with, because they're getting all this leeway with uh, not being able to, not having to to, to uh, do some issues. The one thing that I have to say is uh, I I thought the artist did a good job. Patrick Leeson, he he's a good artist. He he doesn't do a bad job whatsoever. I didn't really have any complaints about anything that he did. The villain that they're creating in this three-issue story arc seems as if it could be interesting, but again, it doesn't seem interesting enough where it's going to stick around. I feel like we're going to be getting a number of Unanimos in the near future. The one thing that I have to say is, does anybody remember when Peter Tomasi was last on the Bat Books? Well, Bat Books that we actually covered, which was, he, he did the... Blackest Night Batman miniseries, the three-issue story, but we didn't cover that on this podcast. We did cover it on the website, but the last time that he was on a book was Nightwing, and he actually closed out the Nightwing series, and the last couple issues of Nightwing were complete crap, and part of the reason was because we felt like they were just filling in random issues to get to the point where the series was going to end. They knew the series was going to end, and they wanted the series to end the same time as the other series as well. So what they did was they told these stories that provided nothing to further the story, the overarching storyline, along, and it became nothing but filler. There was this issue where Dick Grayson, Damien, and Tim Drake are all sitting down watching TV with Alfred in Wayne Manor. 
what do you know? We get the almost exact same situation, only now Bruce Wayne's there in this issue. I really didn't like that issue in Nightwing when they when he told the story then, and I thought it was a real big waste of a couple pages in this issue. You know, I get that, you know, DC wants to keep the, the prices at two ninety nine and I'm thankful for that. But they chopped the number of pages down too by doing the two ninety nine. So when you get a story that already doesn't have as many pages as you would normally have, and then you fill up almost half the book with a completely useless story about everyone watching TV and watching The Mark of Zorro because everyone's around and is going to share some snacks and watch a movie, completely useless. Don't do it. Please don't ever let me see it again because <laughs> I'm going to see a worse, worse rating. I'm going to give this... One and a half out of five batterings. A huge drop from what we should be expecting from this series. Man, you're on fire tonight. <laughs> I didn't mind the uh, opening scene uh, because I legitimately do not remember how Nightwing ended. So if that was kind of repetitive, that, the way that series ended, then um, I didn't catch it. And I'm kind of a sentimental guy towards uh, family bonding. Uh, the issue itself, uh, man, I think it was. Pat- I think the biggest thing is that it was padded out way too much. I think it was a fine introductory issue to an arc, but you could have you could have told more in the story that you did. There were scenes like whole pages of scenes where um, Batman and Robin are just talking, or, or Batman and Commissioner Gordon and Robin are talking. The best part to me was the scene at the end with all the illuminated bats because that was some gorgeous artwork. But the story itself, I, I don't think it's bad. I think it's all right. I think it's pretty good, but when you when you put all the delays into consideration, it does kind of kind of burn you once you uh, think that you know is this it really? I enjoyed this issue for what it was, so I'm giving it three and a half out of five batterings. But it does need to get better than this. I will say that. Okay, I hated this issue. The first three pages were basically filler when they were just sitting down. It was nice to see him as a whole family, I suppose, but it was so pointless. There was no need for it. And especially when Bruce just turns out out of literally nowhere. Like, he's nowhere <laughs> to be seen. And then he just appears and catches this remote. And that didn't make any sense. <laughs> and I didn't really like the art either. I mean, there were a few panels I thought were gorgeous. But everyone had massive heads. I didn't like that. Yeah, there's a few smaller kind of nitpicky rant things I have, which they may just apply to me. But, like, when Commissioner Gordon puts Damien in, like, an an arm lock. Why would you do that to a trained assassin? I know Damien wouldn't attack Commissioner Gordon, but he could just kill him so easily. And I think the worst part of it was when they were examining the body, trying to work out who it was. Okay, so the face was destroyed. I can understand that. Like, I can even understand maybe dental records being smashed apart because, you know, street pizza. The fingerprints were burnt off with acid. But why not just take a blood sample? No one mentioned the blood sample. I mean, there was enough of it on the pavement, like, when he hit the floor. So I didn't get that. And uh, why would the victim leave that suicide note under the scaffolding thing when he jumped off? Because only Batman found that, and that's because he did some elaborate flip off the side. No one else would have found that. So that was a waste of paper. And then... (laughs) (laughs) And then after Man Bat turned up, I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I know it's only your first issue, but I'm going to give this half a battering. <laughs> awesome. All right, so that is going to give Batman and Robin, number 20, 
one and a half out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next book, which is Batman Beyond number two. Computer, analyze the metal this thing's made of. Computer? Incorrect command. Uh, do the thing where you figure out what it's made of. Request for spectrographic analysis. Uh, yeah, that's it, what you said. Batman Beyond 2, written by Adam Beechin, drawn by Ryan Benjamin. The issue starts off where we last left off, where Terry McGinnis is standing in front of the Justice League, telling them they cannot enter the mall and possibly have hostages uh, die because of their need. The Justice League says, well, you know, why do you think we're going to listen to you? Bruce Wayne is in Terry McGinnis' ear telling him, okay, it's time to take out the Justice League. So very, very smartly, uh, Terry McGinnis starts taking out one by one members of the Justice League. When it gets to the point where Aqua Girl very quickly puts uh, Terry McGinnis in a predicament where he is stuck, we then cut to the mall where Jats is telling the people that he's in a lot of pain, and Terry McGinnis's mother is telling him, well, why don't you just use your powers to heal your arms so you're not in as much pain? Um, while she's saying this, three people tackle him, and in turn, those three people end up turning to copper. We then cut to Dana Tan, who is at still at the Speedsters dealership, and says that she's uh, was supposed to be waiting for a boyfriend who was going to get some lunch. Clearly... He's not coming back, so she takes off on the speeder. We then cut back to Terry McGinnis, who is frozen in a giant block of ice and breaks out very quickly and once again takes out Green Lantern to make sure that he can't do anything. Terry then figures out a way that he can actually team up with the Justice League and decides, well, that's what we're going to do. After getting a nice little energy blast from Green Lantern, the police interrupt and say, okay, well, if you're going to, te- uh, you know, you may not need any help from us, but this is what we've got. A couple pages later, after a bunch of back and forth between Batman and all of the members of the Justice League, we then cut back to the mall where Jat has figured out a way to start healing himself and recreating the bones, the cells, the skin for his arms so that he could be healed. Uh, we then cut to the Justice League, which are is in an underground cavern, underneath the mall and they break through and as they break through they come inside and see a new and improved matter master jets in a new form and saying that his uh, new name is going to be none other than master this obviously will be continued in the next issue which they are calling collateral damage so that is batman beyond number two all right so batman beyond number two it was kind of interesting to see Bruce Wayne kind of egging Terry on and saying, okay, let's take out the Justice League. Come on. You know we want to do it. Let's let's just do this. And then it was kind of interesting seeing repeatedly over and over again Batman eliminating each member of the Justice League by doing a whole lot of very simple things. It was just very interesting. It was kind of almost one of those things where you got to just laugh at the, you know, the simple things that could paralyze some of these members of the Justice League of the future. The issue progressed very, very well. There was, it seemed to me, a lot of dialogue that probably we didn't need to have between the Justice League and Terry McGinnis. But to me, it just came off as a lot of bickering, which we probably didn't need to have, but it was there anyway. The idea of Jets becoming Matter Master, or as he's calling himself, Master, I find interesting, but it also, there was a lot of, like, 
leads into, well, is he going to become this? Does he Is he going to fully comprehend power that he has? And if so, what could happen because he figures out these powers? It, it's, it was foreshadowing the entire time of what it was actually going to happen. And, of course, it happened. This issue, again, it really didn't excite me to what we have come to expect from Batman Beyond. I said it last month when we when I reviewed Batman Beyond number one, this, this isn't really doing what I expected it to do. I get that, you know, they're not really kicking this series off as if it was the beginning of telling the story of Batman Beyond, because they kind of did that already with the miniseries, but the miniseries was much more interesting. They added a lot more value to the mythos of Batman Beyond than this these first two issues of this series have. So I obviously will still pick up next month and I'll still review it next month and we'll see what happens. Maybe after we get over this little hump that we have with this this Justice League story, we'll get something that furthers along the uh, Batman Beyond mythos. But until then, I can only give this issue two out of five batterings. Now watch watch me go and be all negative. This issue, I can't believe this thing started out with them fighting. I mean, I know that's where the last issue ended off, like, but it was more of a confrontation there's a hostage situation, and the Justice League are fighting Batman because he wants to say he wants to make sure they don't get hurt. I can't believe like half, the first half of this book was about that. I was like, uh, there's no there's no justification for this, and the fact that Bruce is like, yeah, go get him, beat him up, yeah. I was like, are you serious? Are you are you really serious now? I, I mean, that really they kind of ruined the issue for me. I really care about what else was going on in the issue. Dane, they, they went back to Dana and she said, oh, I'm still waiting for Terry. And uh, I thought it was a little funny how Green Lantern got his revenge back. But really, the first half of the book just left a horrible taste in my mouth. So I got to give this two out of five better ranks. Yeah, I actually really like the sequence with Bruce telling Terry exactly how to beat them. And the way he knew exactly what they were going to do is like, oh, by now this person should be here, so just do this. I thought that was really fun. And, uh, yeah, like you said, how the Green Lantern got his revenge, I thought that was pretty funny. But overall, nothing really happened in this book. I was trying to think of stuff to review in it, and it was basically the first two thirds were like a giant fight with a few one-liners in it, and then there's a little bit of progression at the end where he becomes a matter master, and then that's pretty much it. But uh, I still enjoyed reading it, so I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Batman Beyond number two two out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, which is Batman Confidential number 53. Hey! Do I hit your kids? Oh, actually I do. Batman Confidential issue 53, titled Altered States, part four of the Superpowers arc, written by Mark Guggenheim with art by Jerry Bingham. This issue opens up where the last one left off with the Justice League confronting Batman. We get to see Batman's thought process as he dispenses with the members of the Justice League, as well as the first flashback of many, where we see Yang Guizhou learning the techniques that Batman is running through in his head. The sequence of present and flashback fighting scenes continues for three pages before the Martian Manhunter confronts Batman. We flash back to Yang, who is saying he doesn't want to replace anyone after Sudi's death from the last issue. And then it's back to Batman saying he has his own agenda and doesn't want to be involved in the group. It is revealed that the Justice League has something that Batman wants before yet another flashback to Yang practicing with shurikens. When it is revealed how all of the other characters in the flashback sequences have their powers. They're called 
totems, symbols that channel energy. When asked what Yang's totem is, we cut back to the bat symbol on Batman's chest. Batman is searching the Justice League headquarters for a video of their encounter with the villain Batman is trying to defeat. The Justice League managed to defeat him by draining the energy from him that he stole from others, and Batman creates a device that will have the same effect, mocking the fact that it took a League of Five to do what he could do alone. In another flashback, we see the League voting on whether Yang should be a member of their group. When we cut back to Batman discovering a machine made by his adversary that will create more like him. Cutting back once again, we see Yang accepted into the League and given an elixir that will give him his powers. The villain then approaches Batman who uses his weapon on him successfully as he is brought to the floor. In the flashback, Yang is writhing in pain, which apparently is good as pain as strength comes through pain, but he disappears just as Batman is advanced upon by an army of creatures to be concluded. Alright, Batman Confidential 53. I have nothing really to say about this. Um, I cannot wait till this is over. We've been getting this this story for four issues now, and it'll be concluded next month. I'm just completely tired of it. the The art is the same. I, J- Jerry Bingham has done a, a good job with this, in my opinion, horrible story. I'm not sure what this has to do with Batman Confidential. It almost seems as if this should not be a story being told in Batman Confidential at all. But this again is the same thing I said last month, and the month before, and the month before. So with this, one out of five battering. Uh, this issue, uh, I'm not a fan of... Um, look how cool Batman is. He's beating the Justice League. Especially the way he addresses them in this inner monologue. Like, the red one wish me first. The woman's the most powerful. Like, wasn't, wasn't Batman a founding... Okay, maybe not a founding member, but he knows... It's, it's not like he doesn't know who these guys are in the first place. That rubbed me the wrong way. The story is completely confusing. I never know what's going on, which is annoying. So I'm giving this one out of five veterans as well. I didn't think this story was too bad because I really like the way the two like individual stories fit together because it, it really reminds me of you know Watchmen where the kid's reading the Black Freighter comic and it just helps narrate the story. But um, yeah, I, I think the reason I enjoyed Batman beating up the Justice League so much is just because how it was so similar to in Batman Beyond. It kind of made me laugh how they came out in the same month. Yeah, I find myself really just not caring. And I'm not sure if it's because it's not in continuity or just because the book's being cancelled soon. But uh, I'm only going to give it a two out of five Batarangs. All right, so that is going to give Batman Confidential number 53 one out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Birds of Prey number nine. You happy punching the bag or you want to go a few rounds with me? I am talking about sparring. That'd be nice, too. Birds of Prey, issue 9. The next part of this Death of Oracle story, things aren't going so good with Black Canary, who got a little bit of a, kind of a Scarecrow-esque fear toxin experience from Modus, one of Calculator's men. As I said, it was very Scarecrow-esque, and Black Canary sees a lot of people like Sin, Green Arrow... Roy Harper and her parents, and they all personify her fears and how she's let them down. As Batman rescues her comatose body and takes her back to Oracle's current headquarters in Core Tower, where Oracle is being chewed out by Hawk, wondering where Dove is and what is this cockamamie plan of hers. 
as Oracle and Batman try to figure out what the heck to do with Black Canary. The birds, who have been kidnapped by Calculator's men, are held at gunpoint, while Calculator demands to know who the real Oracle is, since the information's been wiped from his mind, and he wants to know if Dove is really Oracle. Dove loses her cool, thinking that Huntress is about to be executed, and kind of dove morphs in front of the calculator and his men and begins to attack. Calculator surprises them with some heavy artillery, as the birds realize that this plan isn't going too well. Really like the art this issue. Um, again, this plan seems pointless, and uh, I like Batman's involvement, and a little tired of seeing Calculator, and Mortis was a little too Scarecrow-esque for my taste, but the effect was kind of cool. A lot of jumping back and forth here. But enjoying this story, I'll give it four out of five batterings. All right, Birds of Prey number nine. This issue was kind of interesting. I was very interested to see how they were going to progress the actual death of Oracle, since that's kind of what they've been trying to accomplish with the story arc, but it just seemed to be completely wary from the, the lines that they were trying to get across. The fact that the helicopter blew up and suddenly Calculator automatically assumes, oh, well, she was on that ship, so yes, I'm good now. I am completely free. Why does he think that for some reason, if Oracle is dead, whatever happened to his brain is going to disappear? She's not some kind of magical element that she can implant something, and only if she is dead will it disappear. So that, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I found it really interesting that Hawk tried to go after Batman. That just seems to me like a very rookie, stupid maneuver. And I thought Hawk has been around a little bit longer than a rookie status as far as going after Batman. That was just stupid on his part. Again, we get the a lot of the innuendo, unnecessary cheesecakeness as far as the current talking about, you know, feeling up the birds while they're on the bus. I don't really understand the necessity behind it, but for some reason it just keeps happening. I, I'm glad the issue ended where it did. I'm also glad the Black Canary kind of figured out what was going on and took over the situation and made Mortis kind of black out. That was kind of good to see. Next issue is going to be the conclusion of this story arc. I'm actually looking forward to the way it ends. I'm actually looking forward to see exactly whether or not this is going to become something that has to do with the actual name of Oracle dying, if Oracle, if Barbara Gordon becomes a new person, as has been hinted on numerous times, it just seems as if uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions, and hopefully a lot of them get answered in the next issue. So I'm looking forward to the next one. For this one, three out of five batterings. This is Stark 3 in, in the, uh, in the uh, consecutive issues we've, we've covered today where I didn't care for it. We started, the, we started this, this story arc with Asian Sayef, which was really good artwork. And then we went to Gillian March, which uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of his work. I thought it was really good artwork as well. A bit unexpected, but still good. And then we get Inaki Miranda. I'm not sure where this artist came from, but this artist needs to practice more, in my opinion. I really thought this was horrible. This is like akin to Walt Flanagan, very inconsistent. The people's faces looked really weird and very inconsistent as well. And I really thought this is some of the worst art I've seen uh, this in a recent memory. The story itself, I'm not... For the death of Oracle, you get the sense that it should be Oracle who should be getting most of the spotlight, but all we get, we get just more and more antics with the birds. And it's not even very well-written antics, like the whole uh, Lady Blackhawk gets slapped and she says, oh, don't you do that again. 
and we get Hawk trying to fight Batman, which is the stupidest joke I've seen since Huntress trying to fight Shiva, which was in the same title. I don't know. And one, one thing that I really thought was just, you, you, you really need to research this more, was a Dove attacking like the, the people in a rage. Um, isn't that Hawk's Tower of War? Dove is supposed to be the Avatar of Peace. I can understand her feeling human emotion getting angry, but she uses her powers to fuel that emotion. If anything, her powers wouldn't work. Like, that's not how her powers work, and she can't... Like, I'm, I'm trying to say she can't do that. So, I'm tired of Jill Simone going for these um, these really cheap emotions and these really cheap scenes and them being written very cheaply and annoyingly. I mean, like, the very end, oh, you really think Oracle's dead? I mean, we know she's not going to be dead, but at least try to make it a little more convincing than a cheap cliffhanger. Oh, the, the thing explodes. Who cares? One out of five better ranks. I mean... Dustin pretty much said everything I was going to say almost word for word right down to the rating but uh, yeah I suppose the main thing I got out of it was I've always assumed that um, Oracle was just going to drop her name and just become that avatar from the, uh, Morrison's The Return Issue and with this it did get me questioning that but there was no evidence that she was on that helicopter at all and uh, I liked it how Black Canary got out of that you know, the curse thing, but uh, she seemed to do it very quickly, like she suddenly just turned around, which I thought was a bit odd. I did like the uh, mention to Hawk's visit to the Penguin last issue, because that didn't make any sense, and uh, I want to actually know what happened there, so I'm not sure if we're going to get any expansion on that, or if that was it. Yeah, just more really odd sexual content, and I'll give it three out of five batterings. Alright, so that is going to give... Birds of Prey, number nine, two and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Night and Squire, number five. Two days ago, Zebra Man, you told the parole officer you would never use your magnetic powers for evil again. <laughs> Looks like you'll never change your stripes. Okay, Knight and Squire, issue 5, written by Paul Cornell, art by Jimmy Broxton. But before I start, I just have to say, if you've been reading the rest of the series and for some reason haven't read this yet, please just pause the podcast, go out and buy it, read it, and then come back and listen to it when your awe has subsided. Okay, so if everyone's ready, we open the issue with Jarvis Poker, the British Joker, in hospital, getting told that he's terminally ill. Then we cut to his home where he's watching Knight and Squire on Friday night with Jonathan Ross. When Ross insults Jarvis for being a cheap knockoff of the real thing. The next day, in an attempt to prove himself, Jarvis attempts to rob a bank. However, he uses a water pistol and is laughed out of the building. Several more similar events occur before Squire deduces that Jarvis is dying, which explains his behaviour. With this knowledge, Knight and Squire appear on TV again to tell the public that Jarvis is up to something very serious, which makes Jarvis very grateful to them. Soon after, massive banners with novelty song lyrics appear on bridges all over Britain. Knight and Squire work out the clues and track Jarvis to Britovision, a novelty song competition. Knight tends to arrest Jarvis, but he escapes with the use of sneezing powder, but Knight lets him go because he says he's not hurting anyone. A week later, Jarvis is on top of Tower Bridge when the Shrike catches him. Jarvis clearly isn't happy, claiming they had an agreement, when a gloved hand emerges holding a gun. 
figure shoots the shrike full on in the face. It falls into the Thames below, and the mystery character is revealed to be the Joker, the real Joker. The Joker is not happy with Jarvis stealing his attention, and tells him he is now the, his psychic, as he will kill every superhero in England. See you next month. Alright, Night and Squire, number five. I thought this was another good issue. Certainly, this, this series has had its ups and downs with certain issues, but this, I thought, was a good issue. The Jarvis Poker character, I think, is a very unique character. Well, not, not unique in the sense that we don't know somebody who's similar to this character, but I like how, for some reason, the, you know, the British side of things is really just the opposite of the American side of things. I'm enjoying this. I'm interested to see what's going to happen with issue six, and I hope that Knight and Squire... Obviously, they're not going to get a real series, but I hope that we continue to see them once their miniseries is wrapped up. Oh, you say that now. Just wait. Knight and Squire, number five, three and a half out of five batterings. I thought this issue was enjoyable. I really enjoyed this miniseries uh, for every issue, though. My enjoyment kind of ebbs and flows. I didn't like it as much as the last issue, but it was fine. The Joker did. That one really kind of, like, spooked me. I was like, whoa, the Joker... And at the very end where he says he's going to go after all the British superheroes, that that definitely gets me interested in the next uh, issue. So that was really cool. So I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. What's wrong with you guys? I can't <laughs> rank this book high enough. I, if I could, I'd give it a six out of five. I, I love this issue. I thought the art was consistent, the story was great, and all the comedy was there. But then we had that twist at the end, which... It blew me away. I mean, I no, I didn't see that coming at all. Which is, I mean, I normally flick through an issue before I read it, and I didn't with this one for some reason. I'm so glad I didn't. I just love the way that this whole series has been kind of jokey, tongue-in-cheek, and then we get to that, and the whole tone just drops to this very realistic round level, and it really sucks you in. I felt like I'd been slapped in the face and told to grow up. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't wait for the next issue. I'm really looking forward to this. And... Uh, I mean, there was that Jarvis Poker comic in the middle, which was a bit dragged out. I mean, it was only two pages, but even that was a great parody of the Beano comic, which we have in England. And I love the reference to Jonathan Ross. You know, he's just like a chat oh, show. Yes. Yeah, do you know who he is? I do, uh, yes. Yeah, so I thought that was great as well. So I'll give this five out of five. <laughs> All right, so that's going to give Knight and Square number five. Four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, which is Red Robin number 20. You make me think of a little robin. Ugh, a robin? Like the bird? You know, kids my age get beat up for nicknames like that. How about if we call you our flying squirrel? As always, written by Fabian and illustrated by Marcus Toe, this issue starts off pretty much right where the last one ended, that, um... Catman is sort of watching over Tim Drake and wherever he's going to find out where he is going towards um, uh, Lonnie Macon. He has been hired by Malakek to try to get grab the hacker codes from the firewall that they set up in the last issue for the internet. And so, obviously, Catman and Red Robin have a scuffle. Catman, honestly, nearly hands Tim his head. Tim gets beat up pretty, pretty quickly throughout the beginning of the issue. Will his ride in uh, Catman's escape. But as a backup measure, Catman pulls out Tam Fox's cell phone and destroys it, signifying that Tam Fox is under attack. 
Red Robin quickly flies to her uh, apartment and tries to get Batgirl to help on the way, but he ends up, he ends up seeing just in time to see the calculator blow up uh, Tam's apartment with a RPG rocket launcher. Back at Tam's little makeshift headquarters, after we know that Tam has has not died because she's with her, her father Lucius right now. Tim tries to identify who he saw as the shooter, and it's identified as Noah Cutler, a.k.a. The Calculator. Again. But he figures that it must be a calculator robot, because there's no way that he could have gotten down there at that point in time. So he tries to scan the face recognition software throughout all of the, pretty much the entire planet. 147 Noah Cutlers around the planet, so they must all be robots. Tim says he can't handle this by himself. And he doesn't want to bother Bruce and Dick because he wants people to work with him and not work for him or vice versa. So he calls the Teen Titans after getting Damien on the phone. This is his first meeting with the whole group as a whole group and not individually in a while. So while he's afraid that things are going to be apprehensive at first, they all greet him with open arms. Tim says that he had been talking with Oracle and Cyborg and had traced the signal of all the robots down to Istanbul. And while the Titans stick out Istanbul... They see a calculator robot, and Damien jumps in immediately and chops the thing's head off. But the robot is wired to explode with C4. Superboy and Kid Flash save the day, but the issue ends with the Teen Titans being surrounded by a handful of calculator robots, armed all with C4, and that is where... Alright, so Red Robin number 20. There's a lot of interesting things that happened here. The one thing is, this is being written by Fabian Nesizer, who does a very good job of combining a lot of the elements that are happening in the entire DC Universe along with what happens in Red Robin. Unfortunately, it seems as if there was some kind of lack of communication between him and Gail Simone because with Oracle being busy with the whole thing that's happening in Birds of Prey, as well as being obviously a guest character numerous times in Batgirl, along with the extensive history that Oracle's had with the calculator, you would think that there'd be some kind of mention of what's going on in those other books with the calculator, since the calculator has become the main villain as of right now during this crossover with the Teen Titans. I did like the element where they combined what happened in Teen Titans number 91 with Tim being, or Tim calling Teen Titans and asking them for assistance, because I actually read Teen Titans 91 and found it to be quite interesting, the nice little crossover between them two, and then you have the proper crossover with issue 92. Tam Fox is one of those characters I'm I'm really just wanting to not be around anymore, and the fact that Tim takes the time to go out on a date with her after the whole Russia incident, just, I mean... She wasn't in this issue then. <laughs> it's a character that I feel is, is around because Tim has to have some kind of female around because he's nearing that point where we all know his V-card's going to get taken. (laughs) And quite honestly, if it ends up being Tam Fox who does it, I... I, (laughs) All I can say is he could have done better. (laughs) Sorry. I like it. I like how he said V-card being taken as if he has no choice in the matter. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So with with all of that, it'll be interesting to see how this crossover wraps up in Teen Titans 92, which we obviously won't be reviewing, but we will have a review on the website, so you can check that out. But I'm more interested to see how this is going to pick up next month with the next issue, or, uh, Red Robin number 21, because uh, we assume this is going to wrap up 
the Teen Titans and the calculator part. So what's going to happen? It kind of left it really open ended, mostly because it will this story will you know finish up with in pages of Teen Titans, but there's a lot of like empty holes in what's going on with Red Robin that seems as if well they could pick up on any of them, which can be a good thing. And you know I'll look forward to next next month's issue. So with that. This issue of Red Robin, I'm going to give three out of five batteries. I enjoyed this issue as much as I've been enjoying most of the title. After that kind of uh, disconcerting issue last month, I feel it's sort of back to form here. And what I especially enjoyed about it was the little the little things, really. I like that he calls Stephanie on his way over to try to save Tam. And I kind of like that brief exchange. I like his feelings towards his new headquarters because we know a couple of issues ago that he wants to have a new headquarters towards the theater where um, Bruce and his family went to when uh, the night they got sh- his parents got shot. So he said he's mentioning that in the background. He's apprehensive towards his teammates as a whole team. And I, I, I really enjoyed Tim's thought process here. I just, I just enjoy reading about this character. And the major plot's not wholly interesting to me. I, I, I'm kind of into it just because of the way that uh, Fabian writes Tim, really. It's a very simple thing, but I, I dig it. I liked the fight scene between him and Catman begin because in the first couple of panels, there's a lot of really wide shots where you kind of see, to see them. There's multiple images of them fighting, and Tim's actually getting really beat up. And I thought that was a really good. Uh, I thought that was a really good demonstration of Marcus Toe's art. He's a very, um, very variable artist. He has a lot of variety. Well, I enjoy this pretty pretty much. So I'm giving this four out of five batterings. Yeah, I think this was supposed to be an interlude issue or something like that. So I'm not sure how much it will actually play into the next issue. Yeah, I, I like the issue. I uh, I don't read Teen Titans, so it's nice to see how um, Damien gets on with them in there. So that was quite interesting. And that he still doesn't really like him. And I like that that's being carried on, like that sort of jealousy between them. And then everyone sort of treats Damien a bit like a kid in there, which I thought was quite fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next issue of uh, in um, Teen Titans. I'll definitely be getting that because I want to finish the story. But like you said, there seems to be some sort of, uh, miscommunication with all the writers of how much the calculator's been in all of these books recently. One of the little things I noticed, which I thought was quite nice, was in Red Robin's base where he had pictures of all the Bat family. They were just uh, recent comic covers, which I thought was yes. <laughs> But uh, I'll give this three and a half out of five Bat ranks. All right, so that is going to give Red Robin number 20, three and a half out of five Bat ranks. Let's move into our next book, Gotham City Sirens number 19. Do you have a statement? I just want to say, if there was no Batman, there'd be no Joker, and I'd never have met my puddin'. Thank you, Batman! Sad, isn't it? Gotham City Sirens, issue 19. More arguing about men. Talia and Zatanna argue over if they should mind-wipe Catwoman or not, and Talia does her whole Bond villain monologue about how she planned all of this to prove that Catwoman's not worthy of knowing Bruce's identity. Zatanna attacks Talia, but Talia retaliates by trying to blow up a building that Selina's in, but Selina's saved by Zatanna at the last minute. And apparently Talia's not in the rest of the story, so she just decided, oh well, since I didn't blow up Selina, I'm gone. 
Zatanna apologizes to Catwoman for her role in all this and says, if you want, because your feelings for Bruce cause you so much pain, I'll wipe them from your mind, but Selina refuses. As she talks to Harley about all this, Harley relates the feelings that Catwoman has to Batman with her feelings of the Joker and realizes that the Joker's caused her so much pain. So as Ivy and Catwoman chase after Harley, who gets a stash of the Joker's weapons, telling her to stop. Harley says she doesn't care, she's going to kill the Joker, and knocks the sirens out as she runs off for her new plan. Alright, so Gotham City Summer in 19. It was interesting how they kind of wrapped up this storyline with Catwoman and Talia and Zatanna and Harley and, and Ivy. It... They wrapped it up, but then obviously they also left it open for the next story arc, which will be interesting because it will be, I think, one issue between the story where they have the three-part crossover between Batman, Gotham City Sirens, and Red Robin. So, not really sure, again, why, why they're doing this. Clearly, Harley Quinn is not going to kill the Joker in one issue, but uh, we'll see what happens with that. It was interesting to see Selina kind of struggle with the idea of, well, you know, at this point, you know, I know Batman better than anybody else, and Batman knows me better than anybody else. The, you know, even though that's the case, you know, she struggled with the idea of, well, maybe it was better if we didn't actually know each other, because every time I'm with him, I always know that he's thinking of something that's completely unrelated to me. It's a good idea, but the only problem is that it contradicts what's been occurring in the other Batman books, where Bruce Wayne is making plenty of time for Selina. Uh, we saw it in the Streets of Gotham, we saw it in Batman Incorporated, we saw it in Batman. And so that doesn't really follow what's been going on, especially since he's back now and he has this new idea on life. It doesn't really make sense with what they perceived the relationship in this book. Um, so I didn't really like that. It kind of was as if this story was written before Bruce came back, and it all makes it would all make sense that at that point. But since he's been back, it clearly does not really work. So the art by Andre Scanaldo was okay. It wasn't over the top as far as what we would normally see from Gilliam March. But at this point, I really don't even care. It is interesting for at this point where we see Ivy, who's no longer wearing a bikini type bottom, and now is wearing or of boy short bottoms. I wonder why and how that happened. <laughs> I digress. How could that happen? <laughs> so Gotham City Sirens 19, I'm going to give this two and a half out of five batterings. This is interesting. I like that Satana and uh, Taya hashed it out. Though there was a line in here that I really thought was nonsensical. I think Taya says in the first page, I can see you think what I had to do makes me evil. Well, I think what I had to do makes you weak. Not sure about that line. But what I like about this issue is how it changed. It sort of resolves the Catwoman thing. But Catwoman is dealing with it. And her dealing with it goes into another plot line with Harley. I felt that was a very natural way to continue a storyline. It, it wasn't like, you know, a, a total gear shift. I felt, I felt it was a really cool way to have Harley kind of reconcile her feelings about the Joker and decide that she's going to kill him in the end. That was, that was probably the best thing I've ever seen from this title. I thought that was really cool. And especially in the last page, that first panel with, like, the half-silhouetted shot of Harley with, like, this smiling face. I thought that was creepy. Really, I, thought, I really thought that was. So, um, 
I was a little bit entertained by this. I'll give this a straight three out of five better ranks. Yeah, I thought it was really weird when Harley just said, all right, cut the crap, and she was really serious with Selena. I thought, so I'm not sure if that's sort of out of character for Harley Quinn, but then as Harleen Quinzel, she used to be a psychiatrist. So that kind of works, but it really took me off guard, and I didn't really understand what was going on there. But um, I like the broker in the issue. I think he's quite fun. I really like seeing him. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I thought the best part of this book was there seemed to be a Star Wars New Hope reference in there, where they went up to Harley Quinn when she was searching for that Joker bag. I went, how are you? And she went, oh yeah, I'm fine. Everything's fine. How are you? But uh, yeah, I'll give it a three out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Gotham City Sirens number 19, three out of five batterings. Let's move into our final book, Batman Odyssey number six. Clearly saving the best to last. (laughs) Batman Odyssey issue six, written and drawn by Neil Adams. The issue opens up once again with Bruce Wayne talking to someone the reader can't see, explaining how all of these random events are connected, and that when the little girl got shot, she was actually the intended person for the assassination. He's also holding an ice pick, which has nothing to do with the rest of the issue, but he seems adamant that it was necessary. I don't know what that was about. (laughs) It seems that someone is trying to bring out Batman's dark side. So... Batman the Joker, inhabited by Dead Man, are running through the underground tunnels to get into Arkham, when Batman and Dead Man are set upon by some guard dogs, as a Dr. Chu observes on security cameras, saying that their honoured guest is premature. Batman makes quick work of the dogs, as well as two security guards, and he is then introduced to Dr. Chu in an area of Arkham unknown to him or the GCPD. Batman, the Joker and Dr. Chu then go to the armory to meet Dr. Slatten, who blasts open the door and introduces himself as Trigger. We then see that Talia is being held hostage and Trigger and Batman duel before Dr. Chu moves a secret wall to to reveal Batman's rogue gallery, all in captivity. The uh, dead man Joker attacks Dr. Chu and it's revealed that he's actually Sensai, whilst Batman brutally breaks Trigger's elbows. Batman and Deadman, after leaving Joker's body, escape by diving through a weak wall, and we cut to the Batcave, where Batman is having a conversation with Deadman, who's taken over Alfred's body. It turns out that Sensai is the man who assassinated Brand, making him Deadman, and it was all a test for the League of Assassins. Bruce then works out from this that Dick Grayson's parents must have been killed for the same purpose. And at this point, Robin, Ubu, Rachel Ghoul, Jamroth, Bok, and Primus all appear in the Batcave. Batman and Jamroth both fight Ubu. Rach tells Bruce that the Sensei is his son and explains how this is the case. He also explains that the Sensei's plan to destroy Batman and there is also some explanation as to the odd events that keep happening to Batman. At which point, Bruce falls asleep and collapses on the floor, with the narration of Bruce saying, I had a plan. Ra's and Talia were safe, and I, and I could sleep. 
before I could go on my odyssey, where? Surely I've given you all the clues as to where by now. And uh, that will continue in issue seven. All right, so Batman Odyssey number six. Wow. After much delayed, we, we went two months without this issue, which, no offense, really wasn't missing it. I have to say, this might go down in history as the most convoluted story ever. There is so much stuff going on. It reminds me of Kevin Smith's comments when we did that interview way back when where he said he would ask the artist who they wanted to draw and he would just shout names and say, okay, yeah, I'll include them in the story. <laughs> oh, man. This is... <laughs> talk about having way, way too many characters. Not only do we have the entire corner of the Al Ghouls in the story, but... He finds the necessity to throw in all of Batman's rogues galleries, which, by the way, let's uh, let's go over some of these characters real quick. I know what you're going to say, too. All right, Mr. Freeze, not so bad. Riddler, not so bad. Penguin looks like a cardboard cutout. Mad Hatter, okay. Okay, so who's the monkey? I'm not getting the monkey. I, there's not a, monkey. There's not a giant... There's, I mean, obviously we know there's Gorilla Grodd, and if that's Gorilla Grodd... I thought that was uh, uh, Solomon Grundy. Because Gorilla Grodd's a Flash villain. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is going to get good. This is going to get real good. Okay. <laughs> so if that's Gorilla Grodd, I'm not sure why he's wearing a baseball cap. I guess someone took the monkey from the movie Buddy and gave him some venom, and now he's a Batman villain. We, we show Scarecrow, but all we see is his feet. Um, yeah, wait, wait, wait. Let's continue, because that's only in the top row. We have at the bottom someone we don't see, say, T for two Batman, who you would assume would be Mad Hatter, but wait, Mad Hatter is up in the top in a completely different area, so clearly it's not him. Poison Ivy's naked behind a bunch of leaves. Okay, I've seen worse. Bane. <laughs> uh, that's just a luchador on steroids. That's not Bane. Well, Killer Croc, thing, like, quick, Killer Croc I guess, uh, took a hint from the Ninja Turtles and decided to start wearing trench coats and pants when he's out in public because that's what he looks like. Clayface looks like just literally a blob that <laughs> has decided also to wear pants. And if you see in the very corner, you see... Oh, wait, who's that? Is that uh, the Grey Hulk? <laughs> you would think so because it's supposed to be Solomon Grundy, but for some reason he's drawn him like the Gray Hulk. Um, the Joker does not look like Neil Adams' Joker. This Joker does—I don't know why. Nothing that's in this book is what I would I would associate with Neil Adams. And honestly, this whole thing with Batman Odyssey is very reminiscent. I'm originally from Chicago. You know, the 90s was the dynasty for the Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan was was the man. And then in 2000, he decided, oh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to play for the Wizards. And he played like crap. And it was basically, everyone said, well, why did he come back? He could have just went out on a high note being a great basketball player. No offense, Neil Adams, but that's what I'm thinking you should have done a long time ago. Because if this is what you come out with after all these years... Throw in every character you possibly can imagine into one issue, not just the series, but one issue. Not to mention, when we tally up all the numbers, maybe he's trying to achieve the same numbers as Young Justice is in these 12 issues in the first year of the series being out, with 180 DC Universe characters, because that's the only achievement that he seems to be receiving. Batman Odyssey number six, half a battering. <laughs> oh, that was glorious. All right. <laughs> 
Let's get into this. I have no clue what's going on, and I don't know how many times I've said that when reviewing this series, but that's pretty much the blanket answer. Continuity is, like, all over the place. You have Bane and Dick Grayson as Robin, but Dick Grayson is dressed as Tim Drake. Okay, I kind of I kind of clued in because Neil Adams did design the Tim Drake uh, initial Robin costume, but you have Bane and Dick Grayson. You have uh, Rayshard Ghoul and man, like it's like he's trying to capture what he used to do forty or thirty years ago, and but he can't. Next, is he going to draw like Doctor Hertz with Dick Grayson Robin running around? Everyone looks like this is horrible artwork to me. I know it's sacrilegious just to say because it's Neil Adams and Neil Adams couldn't can't do no wrong, but like the people's mouths are all over the place. The expressions are supremely exaggerated. It's forced. The Joker has like the biggest schnoz. He doesn't, you know, Dustin's right. He doesn't look like the Joker at all. He looks like I don't know. He looks like an Animaniacs character. Why is a guy dressed as like like Brainiac dipped in gold? What's the point of holding Talia Al Ghul hostage? Why is he so inconsistent with the eyes in Batman's cowl? <sighs> There's nothing good to say about this comic book. Nothing at all. And I still hated less than I hated Whiting Guy, but like at least that one had a co- cohesive story. I gotta get the ring as well. This is this is this is crap. Yeah, I think the biggest well, I say biggest problem with this book, aside from having no story, is that how dated it seems. Like there was that security guard who just goes, oh, spit, and damn your eyes, and stuff like that. And Batman, it's a horrible voice for Batman. I think he calls people an idiot like five times in this book. And you're right, like, the Joker has these massive buck teeth, and it just, it doesn't look like him, but, and it's so inconsistent as well. I mean, it said at the end, like, oh, surely you know where this Odyssey is going to take it. I don't know. It could be anywhere. <laughs> You might go and visit Martian Manhunter on Mars or something stupid like that. It could be anything. Don't give it away. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, just, I can't believe this is even being published. It's ridiculous. I, I couldn't bring myself to give it a rating, so I'll just follow you guys and give it half a battering. All right, so that is going to give Batman Odyssey number six a measly half a battering. Too bad this series can't be canceled next month, too. <laughs> Remember that time Poison Ivy nearly smothered us in those vines with the really sharp thorns? Yes. This is worse. All right. With all of those issues, that is the end of our review. So let's uh, throw it over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome back to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today I'm going to be looking at a story called Rite of Passage. This was written by Alan Grant, and the art was provided by Norm Brayfogel, two uh, regular contributors to the Bat Books for Beginners catalogue. And this story was published in Detective Comics 618 through 2621 in 1990. 
And in this story, Tim Drake is still having to prove himself to be the next Robin, but how will he handle the pressure when his parents unwillingly become involved in the dangerous life that Tim has chosen to lead? I set him up, you take him out. One, two, huh, Batman? Tim is admiring Jason Todd's Robin costume and convinces himself that he can do it. He can become a new Robin. We later learn that Batman and Tim are tracking down a criminal who is frauding banks and companies via computer, stealing millions of dollars in the process. Tim receives a postcard from his parents who are travelling around the Caribbean. We then see the plane. The pilot is being controlled via voodoo and black magic by a mysterious figure. This figure forces the pilot to land the plane in the jungle and a mysterious tribe arrive, kill the pilot, and they take Mr. and Mrs. Drake and their personal assistant to their leader, Obia Man. Tim learns of the news and, of course, is devastated. A tape is sent to Drake Industries which shows the hostages and the demands of money. They kill the personal assistant to prove that they are serious. Batman begins to deduce where they are via clues with the tape and uh, how it was delivered. He decides to keep it a secret from Tim so as not to worry him needlessly. Tim, however, does discover the tape and is furious that Bruce kept this from him. Bruce encourages him to let all of his anger out, but Tim takes a look at Jason's robbing case and decides to contain his frustration and help with the situation. Bruce heads to Haiti, meanwhile, and uh, Tim tracks down uh, this bank launderer, uh, the Money Spider, and uh, he eventually tracks it down to be the villain Anarchy. He captures the villain and proves to himself that he is capable of being the new Robin. Bruce then enters the Batcave, bloodied and beaten, and tells Tim that he has bad news. We learn that while Tim was tracking down Anarchy, Bruce went to Haiti and followed the man who was going to be exchanging the ransom money. Once uh, Obia received the money, he then told the Drakes that only their souls would go free, but not their bodies. They will die. And a sacrifice is arranged, which takes place on a small platform surrounded by hot burning coals. Batman arrives and fights the tribe unties the drakes who swiftly drink a container of water left by Obia but this water was poisoned Bruce rushes them both to a Gotham hospital but Tim's mum dies and we learn that Jack Drake may not survive and is also paralysed issues Tim Drake is looking to the future he's wondering if he is just a boy or if he's got the ability to take on the mantle of Robin thinking that one day he'll be a hero but he knows he's got big shoes to fill there I thought that was an interesting uh, idea there of Tim looking forward to the future there was a strange closet uh, which was 
owned by one of the Haitians' uh, henchmen, and in the cabinet it was kept secret until towards the end. Uh, it was slightly intriguing as to what was in there, but unfortunately the conclusion was pretty rubbish, so I was disappointed that after four issues of build-up, there was nothing really going on there. There is a lot happening in this issue. It's uh, enough to keep anyone intrigued and interested. Mostly the Drake's uh, kidnap story is a lot better than the rest of it. But I enjoyed it a lot. Um, You get to see that Tim watches Sherlock Holmes and has an interest in that detective, which I think references and gives us a basis for Tim's skill set in the future, as we know detection is one of his uh, strong suits. Tim mentions at one point that Dick and Jason's parents died and maybe all Robins have to go through this. And I thought that was quite an interesting concept. Is this something that writers just feel they have to put Robins through some sort of tragedy before they can uh, start their job as Robin? But in this issue, we deal with a lot of really deep emotions. I think it's done very well by the writer. Uh, Bruce, Alfred, Tim, Tim's parents, they all go through it and I think it's done very well. Uh, You can also see that Batman's feeling the pain as well. He's doing all he can to find the Drakes. I think it's interesting that, as Tim points out, he doesn't take off his cow when he talks to Tim. He doesn't want Tim to see the pain that Bruce is also feeling. And it also, in in these issues, pointed out how much Alfred is the rock and the emotional stabiliser for uh, Bruce, Tim and the whole Batman family. And Alfred really is a vital part, and I think it was shown in these issues. Uh, There were quite a few subplots going on throughout the four issues, which I thought were a bit dull, detracted from the main story, and I prefer to just focus on the Drake's kidnap. The subplots stretched it out a little bit too long, and I thought that diminished the story, unfortunately. But the main story was very engaging. Uh, There was a fantastic cliffhanger plot point at the end of issue three when Bruce walks into the Batcave to tell Tim he's got bad news. Fantastic ending, and really makes you want to read the final issue. Uh, You can see there's a few moments where Tim is trying to make sure that he doesn't go down the same path that Jason Todd has. Uh, Moments with frustration and anger where he restrains himself a little bit, um, something that maybe Jason Todd wouldn't have done. Uh, There were some great emotional moments with Tim and Bruce. Uh, You can see that Tim's really opened up to Bruce for the first time. The art was a little inconsistent with its detail, um, but it was generally good. Uh, There were some great particular images and panels that were excellent but others lacked a bit of detail uh, and consistency Uh, Batman for instance had many different looks throughout the story some areas he looked like uh, the animated series Batman others he looked like a classic Batman he was friendly and dark depending on the mood which I didn't think was necessarily a problem but quite an interesting take on the fact that Bruce was friendly or or intense depending on what was going on so all in all I thought it was a very good story But the small distractions and subplots bring the story down slightly uh, to a four out of five batarangs. My word. Just like Batman, nobody messes with Tim Drake. So that was Rite of Passage. Uh, I urge everyone to check that one out. It's a major first step for Tim Drake and a devastating moment in his uh, superhero career. Uh, as for Bat Books for Beginners, you can check out all the next uh, books on the re- in the reading list on the forum. They've been posted up, the next uh, six or eight books have been posted up there, so you can check those out if you want to get ahead of the game. You can always contact me at nick at thebatmanuniverse.net. Uh, I'm always open to hearing some of your opinions and, and try and work them into BBFB. 
Uh, so next time I'll be looking at Batman Bride of the Demon. Uh, Raz returns as we learn he has kidnapped a scientist specialing in the ozone layer. So what is Raz up to? Find out next time. I've been Nick, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. So that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you pick up the next set of books for the next episode. Let's get into what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. Uh, we will return in two weeks, and we will have, as far as we know as of right now, we will be covering Batman number 707, Superman Batman number 81, Detective Comics number 874, and Gotham City Sirens number 20. So, very short episode. We might actually have time for a discussion because so few books to cover uh, next episode. So, uh, if you have any suggestions for a discussion that uh, you possibly want to, you want to hear us talk about, send us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and we'll take your suggestions into consideration when we do the next episode in two weeks. With that, that is everything for this episode. As always, you can go onto the website for daily news about all the comics and, of course, your news related to the movies, TV, video games, and merchandise when it comes to Batman. Dark Knight Rises is right around the corner and news is already heating up all the time, including our feature over on the editorial section when we talk about rumors. Everybody likes hearing about the rumors, but we make sure to tell you what is a rumor and what is actually news. So you can check that out as well. You can always leave us a review on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. You may be noticing some uh, changes on the website as as well as some issues with the podcast. We are going through a massive reconstruction of the website and the podcast. So a lot of things are going to be changing. So just watch out for those and, and know that we're going to be bringing you everything back the way it was just new and improved. So you may be seeing a lot less of the older episodes on iTunes and uh, the website, but that doesn't mean they won't be there once we launch the new site. You can always join the forums. If you are having a problem uh, getting your username approved, you can always email us and let us know your username so we, we can make sure to approve you t- because we may have thought your name was a spam name. But you'd be surprised what kind of spam names. And as I mentioned earlier... You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net, and you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Don. This is Joe. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Ciao.
but still maintains her self depreciate self deprecating self her self dep uh, but still maintains her self deprecating sense of humor what oh no self deprecating yeah there you go okay the Morrison soul blade was tapping on So is everything alright? Yeah, I guess he didn't mute his mic, but go ahead and start from the beginning. Okay, yeah. Batgirl number 18, and this, okay. <laughs> Tom, what was your rating again? Four. Didn't you say five, Tom? <laughs> I believe I said four. <laughs> okay. No, the art was by, uh, oh crap, okay, give me, give me a couple of seconds. The art was by... It really was Andres, Andres Ginaldo. Yeah, that guy. Happy Valentine's Day. Joe, how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm okay. 